Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hello again. Welcome back, plant friends. Thank you for joining me here again in my studio recorded in my sweet little town, Taylor, Texas. Well, you know, so far so good as we're easing into April with some really, really amazing weather, plenty of warm, sunny days, and lots and lots of plants and trees are finally coming to life around town. I noticed um, the Bradford pear trees are have just been really incredible. Just so many of them in perfect bloom. Um, a really, really impressive um, display this year. But you know, also the Texas spring wildflowers have started popping up and everyone's favorites, the Texas blue bonnets are really starting to bloom. And I was, um, I noticed them and as I kind of started thinking, I wonder what kind of overall blue bonnet season that we could expect this year in central Texas. And I was just kind of curious what, um, folks were predicting for the blue bonnet display this year. Yeah. Some years are just better than others. And every now and then we have a really spectacular blue bonnet display. Now there are a whole bunch of conditions that factor into what makes a good year for wildflowers and blue bonnets. So they have good germination and blooming in the spring, but rainfall is the biggest determining factor on how many blue bonnets there will be. Rainfall in central Texas was pretty good uh, September last year, but we didn't get much in October, November, or December when most of the blue bonnet seeds start to germinate and a below average rainfall means that we really shouldn't expect a big blue bonnet display in the spring. Now there's, there should still be a nice display of wildflowers in central Texas, but with a poor rainfall this past fall and winter, we'll probably only get a regular average seasonal bloom and that's not that's not bad it'll still be beautiful one of my favorite things to do is just drive around and look at the blue bonnets and um, the other spring wildflowers and get out and take some pictures now you don't have to have a big fancy camera to get great family pictures in the flowers cell phones have really good cameras now and with a few tricks you can um Take some really nice pictures. Try to take your pictures either early in the day or late in the day when the sun is low in the sky. For the best natural lighting, get out 30 minutes after sunrise or 30 minutes before sunset. Taking pictures in the middle of the day won't yield the best results because the sun will cast really harsh shadows Also, if you take your pictures when there are clouds in the sky, uh, your family won't be squinting. 
When you find a nice patch of flowers, try to position your people so the sun is to the side or slightly behind them. Have them kneel or sit among the flowers and then take your picture from above or squat down so that you are at their eye level. Be sure to get some individual pictures of everyone. That way, if you don't end up getting a decent picture of everyone in your group, at least you'll have pictures of everyone that you can display together. If you're planning to take photos out on the side of the road, be sure to have your subjects be on the lookout for snakes and anthills. I've never encountered a snake while out in the blue bonnets, thank goodness, but that doesn't mean that they weren't there. On the other hand, I have stepped right in the middle of a fire ant hill while out trying to get blue bonnet pictures, and I definitely do not recommend that. Don't do that. Um, it's pretty awful to get dozens and dozens of fire ant bites in the middle of the country when you're hours away from home. Also, watch out for traffic and be mindful of venturing onto private property. I do love the blue bonnets. They have such an amazing color and it's not just the crazy intense blue that I love, but blue bonnets also have a little bit of just the most beautiful violet red in them too. If you get up close to them, you'll see that gorgeous wine color in the center of each blossom. To me, the sapphire blue with a little bit of red violet, it just makes them more vibrant and just even more interesting. Even though we get tons and tons of blue bonnets every year, blue flowers are actually really uncommon. Something like less than 10% of all the flowers in the world are blue. Blue bonnets get their vibrant colors from a pigment called anthocyanin. Red, purple, and blue flowers contain anthocyanin. And anthocyanin is also the pigment in some trees with leaves that turn red in the fall. The pigment chemistry is very complex, but for those flowers with anthocyanin to appear blue instead of red or purple, there have to be some other molecules present to form a copigment that changes the color. This copigment is formed through changes in pH and becomes more alkaline. If you planted blue bonnet seeds last fall and you want to keep your blue bonnet patch going and have a really well-established patch in your yard at home, you just have to be okay allowing the wildflowers to grow until they set seed, dry up, and die back. Now, it's not the prettiest part of having a wildflower patch, but if you want your patch to reseed and naturalize, you have to let the seed pods mature before you mow over them or pull them up. When the seed pods are dry, you can leave them or you can collect some to save for next year or to share with others. If you leave them on the plants, they'll eventually split open and the seeds will fall out on their own. You don't have to let them reseed, but you won't get new plants next year. You can always pull up the plants 
when they get ugly and redo your patch every fall and start over with new seeds. Blue bonnets are without a doubt the star of the spring Texas wildflower season. But there is another blue Texas wildflower that I absolutely adore, and that's blue-eyed grass. It doesn't get a whole lot of attention, probably because it's a rather small, short plant. Um, depending on the variety, there's about 13 different um, varieties that grow in Central Texas. A lot of times, it doesn't grow more than six or seven inches tall. Blue-eyed grass has thin, fine, grass-like leaves, and it puts on these cute little dime-sized, star-shaped, deep blue-violet flowers that have a bright yellow eye in the center. I have no idea who named it blue-eyed when it has a yellow eye, but whatever. I don't have to understand it. It's a great little plant. It's a, such a cute little flower. Blue-eyed grass grows quite low to the ground and it grows in clumps. And I just love this plant. It's such a sweet little plant and I am just totally crazy about the delicate little blue star flowers. I just think they're really precious. Even though it's a small plant that tends to blend in with turf grasses and it, it resembles grass. Blue-eyed grass is actually part of the iris family. It's the smallest of all the iris. They bloom best when they are grown in full sun. And these little guys tolerate poor soil and they actually prefer it. They don't need a, oh, a really rich soil. After flowering, blue-eyed grass dies back to the ground and goes dormant during the summer. It's a spring blooming perennial, so it's going to come back every year, every spring. Just like regular full-sized iris, blue-eyed grass spreads by rhizomes. Rhizomes are stems that grow just beneath the surface. Rhizomes grow horizontally and send out new growth that pops up through the soil next to the mother plant. You can dig up these side plants and plant them elsewhere. Since they are such small plants, just dig up a clump and divide the whole mound. Dividing blue-eyed grass every year or two is really good for them, and they really respond to dividing. They put out more flowers and more rise, send up more rhizomes. So do that every two years, and you can end up with a pretty nice blanket of flowers in just a few years. They also reseed easily. You can collect the seeds to save for later. And from what I understand, they are really easy to grow from seed, but I find that dividing them is just pretty satisfying because then you don't have to wait for mature plants. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you'll go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music coming out of our station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plow and Hose Facebook page and like and share it with your gardening friends or head over to 
where you get your podcasts and subscribe to the Plan Host Podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause, and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes and be sure to leave a review if you can. It's super quick. Just click on the stars. It helps others find the show and it lets folks know that Plowing Hose is a pretty good show. And if you've already left a review, thank you so much. I love seeing new reviews. So please go do that. I am also looking forward to the pink evening primroses to start coming up. They usually have a good show right as the blue bonnets start to fade. Evening primroses are those pale pink flowers that are kind of cup shape. They get to be about a foot tall. The flowers are really sweet and um, they're just so delicate looking. They have a cray paper texture and just a really lovely lemon yellow center that is loaded with pollen and the native bees really love it. They go crazy for it. And it's also popular with small birds who like to eat the seeds. Right now, um, their cousins, the yellow evening primroses are blooming. These pale yellow flowers have four large petals that open up late in the afternoon or early evening. During the day, the flowers stay rolled up and they look like short little tubes. The flowers only open for one evening, but they produce a lot of flowers and for a pretty long time. Um, well, you know, compared to other Texas wildflowers, just like blue eyed grass, yellow evening primroses are low growing and form in mounds. The buttery yellow blossoms attract lots of pollinators, including butterflies, moths, and native bees. Since they are an evening blooming plant, they are actually primarily pollinated by those large hawk moths. If you're interested in learning more about these really cool and really important pollinating moths, um, they're also sometimes called um, sphinx moths, be sure to check out episode 41 of the Plow and Hose podcast. It's the Halloween show um, from October 31st last year. Spiderwort is another great spring flower that is starting to pop up here in Taylor. Now, in my head, I consider it an old-fashioned type of flower. I probably think this um, because it's really common in the older neighborhoods around Taylor. It has an unusual growing habit. It grows in clumps and has grassy-looking leaves and flower stems that are tall and a bit bulky. They get to be about 18 to 24 inches tall and they tolerate full sun um, and they do enjoy afternoon shade. Spiderwort flowers can be pink, white, purple, or bright blue. They are very prolific bloomers all through the spring and they don't give up until it just gets too hot. They are simple, sweet little flowers that have three petals and six yellow anthers in the center. Spiderworts bloom 
early in the morning. During the afternoon, the flowers usually close up in the heat, but on cool and cloudy days, they can um, remain open all day long. Each flower only lasts for a day, but each spiderwort has lots and lots of flowers. They are tough little plants that grow well in most soil types, but they do really well in our black clay soil that we have here in our part of central Texas. Um, We are over here in eastern Williamson County. Spiderwort is really easy to propagate from root divisions and stem cuttings, but it also reseeds really easily. I see spiderwort a lot in people's yards, and I absolutely love it when people mow around them. Whenever I see a fresh cut lawn with shaggy patches of spiderworts or other wildflowers, I, th- I just automatically think that there must be nice people that live there. And in general, plant people are usually pretty great. Well, now that it's early April, temperatures are going to slowly and steadily increase. With a warmer temperature, we can plant a whole lot of things in our gardens. Right now, we can plant green beans, beets, cantaloupe, corn, cucumbers, pumpkins, squash, summer squash, winter squash, and we can also start watermelons all from seeds. It's a great time to put out those tomato, pepper, and eggplant transplants. And of course, it's a great time of year to transplant any veggies that you find at the nurseries. You know, speaking of nurseries, get to know your local nurseries. If you are looking for something in particular, find out when they expect deliveries and be sure to go and buy your plants as soon as you can after they get their deliveries. You're going to get the best selection and your choice of the best looking plants all while supporting independent local businesses. Now that we have all kinds of things coming back to life and new baby plants sprouting up, and pretty soon we'll have lots of fruits and veggies, but as we are waiting for all the great produce to set and ripen, all the blossoms and fresh growth are going to be attracting so many hungry insects and critters to your garden. Gardening and growing things is so much fun and I find it relaxing, but it can be challenging, especially if you are like me and prefer gardening organically without depending on synthetic agricultural products like fertilizer and pesticides. Organic gardening relies heavily on observation. By looking at your plants and their growing conditions, you will be in a better position to address issues early before too much damage has happened. Losing your entire harvest or the entire plant is discouraging and depressing. So get out there, visit your little patch daily and see what's going on. You are going to learn so much just by going out and checking on your plants. Mornings are great, but you'll also see differences in the afternoon and evenings. You'll learn which plants are getting too much sun. You'll see different insects. You'll figure out right away if you're watering enough. Like 
most things in life, it's, it's better to be proactive than reactive. So get out in your gardens and observe. Healthy plants with healthy soil are more likely to be able to recover from basic insect damage. A nibble here and there usually won't be devastating. Synthetic fertilizers and pesticides are kind of expensive, but they can also really screw up your soil biology. And a lot of times you will kill the good bugs along with the bad bugs. Synthetic products can also build up in your soil. So I just prefer a more gentle way of managing my garden. During the week, in the mornings, when I'm out in the garden, it's usually just a pretty quick visit. I rarely put on gloves, mainly because I've left them at the back door. (laughs) I really don't get too dirty pulling up little weeds and clipping off damaged leaves. Snails, most caterpillars are easy to pull off and flick away from the garden. Other bugs can get squirted with a hose, or if there's a problem like a fire ant mound, um, then I'll go get my gloves and whatever else I need to deal with the issue I've discovered. Minor infestations can be dealt with. um, Most of the time they can be dealt with just relocation. As you're out in the garden, if you notice aphids on a plant, check out the plant. If it's just a congregation on a leaf or two, just pinch off the leaf and move it away from your garden. You can roll it up and crush the bugs. You could throw it in your compost or just drop it on the ground. Just make sure the bugs are dead. A healthy plant is not gonna miss a couple of leaves and they for sure will not miss those bugs. Keep checking on your plants. The next day, if you see more bugs or evidence of bugs, you can take the next step and give them a good squirt with a water hose and blast them off your plants. Check on them again the next day. If you still see bugs, then you'll probably want to treat your plants to get rid of them. But you really have to know what kind of bugs you have so that you can treat them properly. You can deal with pill bugs, slugs, and snails by setting up beer or fruit traps in your garden. Fruit traps give you the opportunity to relocate slugs and pill bugs to your compost pile. Beer traps are more lethal to this, these critters, um, but beer and fruit traps are really effective, so you won't even need poison. Other soft body Insects like mealybugs, aphids, scale, and spider mites can be easily controlled with insecticidal soap. You can make some soapy water and put it in a spray bottle, or you can just um, buy a bottle of it at the store. All the big chain stores have started carrying it, but it's really just so, so easy to make yourself at home. Get a half gallon of water, add a squirt of dish soap, like a tablespoon, and a splash of vegetable oil. Again, another tablespoon. Water, dish soap, and vegetable oil. Mix these three things together and add to a spray bottle, and you have yourself some insecticidal soap, and that's going to help take care of infestations on those soft-body critters. 
insecticidal soap kills by suffocating the critters. The soapy water and the oil solution, it clings to those soft body bugs. The detergent will dissolve the waxy coating on the bugs. This helps them dehydrate and the oil helps the soap stick and it prevents their bodies from reforming that wax. I think it sounds like a horrible way to die and I'm really glad I'm not a bug. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter if your insecticidal soap is homemade or store-bought. They only work when the spray hits the bugs. It has to be wet to work, so you can't use it as a preventative. Insecticidal soap is really safe to use and it's really effective. But you do need to apply it properly. Like, just like you don't want to water in the full sun, in the heat of the day, you don't want to spray insecticidal soap when the sun is blazing down right on your plants. Moisture on plants in bright sunlight can magnify under the sun rays and cause sun scald damage or um, bleach spots on your leaves. So if you're using any liquid treatments like fertilizer or insecticidal soap, use them in the morning before the heat of the day. If you find that you have a lot of caterpillars eating up your plants, like so many that you can't keep up with picking them off, you can get some liquid BT to spray on your plants. Bacillus thuringiensis. it's a big word, and it's almost always referred to as BT. If you ask for BT at your local nursery, they're gonna know what you're talking about. They probably can't pronounce it either, so just ask for the BT. BT is a bacteria that is lethal to caterpillars and insect larvae, but it's completely harmless to humans, pets, and plants. It's very appropriate for organic gardening. The caterpillars eat the BT and it gets in their guts and it kills them. Just read the instructions on the package. Some are ready to use, some need to be diluted. Either kind are effective for killing hungry caterpillars. Just get familiar with caterpillars and make sure you aren't unintentionally killing the ones that you may want to keep around like monarch, butterfly, caterpillars, or swallowtail, butterfly, caterpillars. As a general rule, the bigger the caterpillar, the more destructive they can be. The bigger ones that I find in my garden tend to get relocated to the chicken yard where the chickens get to decide their fate, but you might not have the option. So BT spray is a quick and easy organic way to deal with caterpillars. Diatomaceous earth is another organic product you can keep around to help address insect issues. Diatomaceous earth is a powdered mineral product that um, can help you deal with larger insects like beetles, fleas, and roaches. It scratches their bodies and it causes them to dehydrate and dry out. But it's safe for humans and pets, and it's really easy to use. You can put it in a shaker and sprinkle it around your plants. I have an old Parmesan cheese 
container and that's where I, I put have one out in the garden and I just fill that up with diatomaceous earth and then I can just shake that around my plants. Diatomaceous earth doesn't discriminate between the bad bugs and the good bugs that you do want, like ladybugs, lacewings, bees, butterflies. Just be cautious and be thoughtful when using diatomaceous earth. Frequently checking on your garden and keeping an eye out for bugs and bug damage will save you a lot of heartache if you catch them early. If you deal with them when you first notice them, you'll be more successful with your plants and and your produce. And you won't be tempted to use synthetic pesticides, which can really F up your soil biology. Synthetics are harmful to wildlife and pets and humans. So avoid them. Avoid them. Pest control does not have to be expensive. You don't have to buy a lot of products. And you for sure don't have to use toxic synthetic products to eliminate problems in your garden. Pay attention to what's going on in your garden and learn about the critters, um, the ones that you don't want, and but also the ones that you want in your garden. That's all I have for today. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you so much. I'll be back next week with more spring gardening info and ideas for your outdoor space. Have a great week. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas.